Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi there. This is Seth Abramovich, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. And how am I supposed to handle podcasting on a day like this? Well, it helps when you have the most iconic star of one of the most iconic comedies of the 1980s. All that and more on It Happened in Hollywood. Welcome back. So as I teased kind of goofily before the theme song this week, we have one of the most iconic comedies. Uh, I would say it's uh, a decade-defining movie as well. Bueller. 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 It's Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And we have none other than Ferris Bueller, Matthew Broderick here for a full hour to share his recollections of making that landmark film. Uh, certainly a film that affected me deeply when I originally saw it. Uh, it's, of course, the brainchild of John Hughes, who uh, got his start in advertising and then uh, moved into National Lampoon movies. And, of course, National Lampoon's Vacation was based on a short story, biographical short story that he had written. But then as the 80s moved on, he moved into teen films. And it started with 16 Candles in 84, which was a huge hit, and then went on to Weird Science and The Breakfast Club in 85. And so by 1986, the year this movie came out, uh, he was pretty much ascendant when it came to the new genre of uh, sort of more intellectually satisfying, emotionally satisfying uh, films about high schoolers. And he had, as well in 1986, Pretty in Pink come out uh, in about February, I think. But Ferris Bueller, some might say, is, you know, his masterpiece. It came out in June of that year. And um, it was inspired by a friend of his, I think, who uh, skipped out on school a lot and uh, was supposed to be a love letter also to the city of Chicago, where he came from. And uh, interestingly enough, we're in the middle of a Writers Guild strike right now. Back in that time period, there was another Writers Guild strike. That one only lasted for two weeks. So John Hughes pitched it on February 25th to Paramount. They bought it, and the strike was going to start, I think, in early March. So he had two weeks to write this entire script, and he did it. He went into a monk-like trance, it's been described, 
and wrote this in one sitting, basically, within a week. And uh, that script is the one that ended up getting shot. It was a lot longer than the final cut, but I believe they shot the entire two-hour, 45-minute version that he had written and then edited it down in the editing room. Now, to play his hero, he needed someone very specific, you know, a little bit puckish, a little bit naughty and against the rules, but also very likable. And uh, that was that was a hard calibration, but he found his Ferris in Matthew Broderick, uh, who had already had, had some success, well, major success on Broadway, starring in Brighton Beach Memoirs, the Neil Simon autobiographical play and then he had, he had already done the sequel Biloxi Blues which happened to co-star Alan Ruck who of course plays Cameron in this film and just did amazing work on Succession. Anyway enough preamble we'll let Matthew tell the rest of the story but I hope you enjoy this it was really incredible for me to speak to the Ferris Bueller about making Ferris Bueller's day off. Matthew Broderick, welcome to It Happened in Hollywood. Uh, I'm so excited. I, I can hardly even believe it. I mean, I don't even know how to express it, really. But you you were my guy. Like, from the second I saw you on Broadway in uh, in Brighton Beach Memoirs, uh, I felt this uh, strong affinity to you. And, oh, um, thanks. And then I saw the whole trilogy and... Um, and then, of course, Ferris Bueller, the, the movie we we're going to talk about today, in terms of the way a movie affected someone personally, I would say it's my favorite movie of all time. Just in the way it, it hit me at the right moment. And um, and uh, I don't know, it opened things up in my mind. So th- this is kind of surreal that we get to relive such an iconic film. Yeah, I hope I can uh, remember enough to, to relive things with you. We will jog your memory, but... Um, Before we get uh, to it, I'd love to talk a little bit about your background. And um, to me, Brighton Beach Memoirs was your big public coming out. It's when the world discovered your talents. So how how did you get there? Tell me a a little bit about your childhood. You grew up in in New York, right? I did. I grew up in uh, about three blocks from where I live, five blocks from where I live now. Um, I grew up on... (laughs) on, uh, I was born on 9th Street and 5th Avenue. Okay. And then uh, I moved two blocks to uh, Washington Square when I was about four. What did your parents do? My dad was an actor, James Broderick. Mm-hmm. And he, my mom was a painter and uh, also a playwright earlier, you know, kind of more bef- when I was very little or before I was born even. But she was really a painter by the time I came around. Yeah, my dad did a lot of uh, theater, and we did a, and then later, and TV and movies. He was an actor. That's that's how I grew up. So you were you were born into the world of of, uh, of drama and acting, and were you encouraged to, to take it up? Um, I don't know that I was actually encouraged exactly, but I wasn't dissuaded. You know, I was uh, when I was very little. Um, I remember my, the first, my first, I always liked being around the, when my dad would do a play, I would like to be at the theater. I always enjoyed going with him and hanging out in the dressing room or, uh, you know, backstage and having snacks and hot chocolate with marshmallows in it. And, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I liked that and I thought, oh, this is good. This would be a nice way to make a living. And then, um, when I was about six or so, some play that my dad was doing, uh, they said, there's a, you know, there's, they've 
parts for a, a, a his the son and the daughter. So you and your sister can play these parts. You know, you can be in the play. And he said, "Would you? You know, would you like that?" And I burst into tears because I was uh, <laughs> absolutely. Once it became a reality, you know, do you want to hold a script and read it out loud in front of grownups? I uh, really almost ran away from home. And uh, <laughs> so I, I let that that opportunity pass me by. But I meanwhile wrote on my library card as a little kid, actor, as my profession. So uh, that was your calling somewhere card. in my mind, I, I think I wanted to. But it took me until well into high school to really uh, try again. So, and then the uh, Brighton Beach Memoirs, uh, obviously this huge Neil Simon autobiographical trilogy, and you were chosen to to play him, basically, you know. Uh, so I, I, how did you get that part? I mean, it's such a huge turning point for you. It was, uh, yeah, uh, Eugene Morris Jerome. Um, let's see, I, I, I had done, I think I was doing a Torch Song trilogy of course. That came around the same time. So I think I might have already auditioned for Brighton Beach once. I auditioned for it about a dozen times, you know, or half a dozen times. And I know once uh, Torch Song came along, that that made it a lot easier to... Then I auditioned for Brighton Beach and they were like, oh, that's the guy from Torch Song Trilogy, which was a big success at the time. Right, with Harvey Farstein. Yeah, but it started just like everybody. I read with a... A lot of people, and, uh, you know, I'd read a couple of scenes for Brighton Beach, and I was like, wow, Neil Simon, uh, I'm reading for Neil Simon play it, and uh, I remember being surprised that, uh, when I thought about it, that Neil was even a uh, a person, you know, or one <laughs> person. I thought uh, Neil Simon was a way of doing plays. I didn't, never occurred <laughs> right. to me that there was a... Uh, you know, bald man with glasses who wrote them. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I auditioned and I kept auditioning. And then finally I got to read for Neil Simon, uh, I believe in a, in a Broadway theater, you know, and it, I was on a stage, a bunch of us, one after another read for him on stage and he was sitting in the audience and uh, he laughed a little bit, I heard. And I was like, wow. And uh, then I got home and I started to think maybe it's possible I could get this Part it took me till that to think I uh, even, you know, that it was possible. And anyway, that, then I read again for him and Herbert Ross, the director. Then I waited around, and they got Jelko Ivanic, who was playing my brother, to come and see if we looked like brothers. And it took a day, and then at the end of the day, they said, uh, "You know, you got the part." They, which the, the the casting director said, "I'm not supposed to tell you." But wow. you got the part. She also said, by the way, to make this story even weirder, while I was reading for it all day, they said, Neil's written a movie that Herbert's directing. Will you read for that? And I said, yeah, okay. And I sat with Herbert Ross in the audience and read all these, every bit of th that I had of the, in uh, a movie that was called Max Dugan Returns. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they they cast me in both of them. So... That day, I had a movie and a Broadway a lead in a Broadway play, and I never had either of those things. So uh, it was it was quite a day. It was the beginning of it all. It was, and it that's how it happened. I was sort of stunned by it. I called my my dad. I remember I said, "Yeah," they said I got both parts, and he freaked out on the phone. But I had not freaked out. I was just like, 
I guess I was stunned. You know, the I still remember individual lines uh, from Brighton Beach. Like my my favorite is the the tension was so thick you could cut it with a knife, <laughs> which is more than I could say for the liver. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think that's the line. Yeah, my his my mom had made liver. <laughs> So there's a lot of jokes about the upcoming dinner that he's terrified of the liver and the uh, and cooked cabbage. She's cooking cabbage, and he, it's a known fact that the smell of cooked cabbage can travel farther. I don't remember the joke, but uh, was what was your approach to to selling these lines? Like you didn't want to oversell them; they sold themselves. Yeah. But like, what was the magic? Did you did you have it? I don't know. I I just. I personally thought it was hilarious, which helped, you know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and um, I related to him, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. He was from 1937 and all that, but I totally related to him for some reason. I think a lot of people do, you know, that even when your parents make something you hate, I think that's a universal uh, problem. And just, you know, with him, I always thought, and they all, we all thought that, you know, to take all his silly, these problems might seem not very important to an outsider. You know, why you have to go to the store to get butter twice a day instead of getting twice as much one time (laughs) really bothers him. (laughs) So I, you know, just tried to take those problems uh, very seriously. Right. And uh, Elizabeth Franz played my mom and she was such a battle act. She was so mean. (laughs) That it was just hilarious because the 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 mother and son seriously seemed like they were going to kill each other sometimes. I think, which is, <laughs> at least in reading it, I think her first line in the play is she picks up a roller skate in the living room, which I have left there, uh-huh. and she says, "A roller skate on my kitchen floor. Do you want me dead? Is that what you want?" <laughs> right. <laughs> so, she was uh, <laughs> yeah, which she delivered quite seriously, not like a, not like you know offhand. <laughs> Just like, are you trying to kill me? <laughs> so that's how the play began. Anyway, yeah, it was all, totally hit me in the heart. Uh, it, it had a real warmth to it. And, um, yeah, I loved it. And he also wanted to be a comedy writer, and I totally identified with that, this aspiration to, to, to get your words out there. So that was amazing. And so I'm sure that you felt the same way that you were. I did. I'm not, a, maybe not as a writer, but it's easy to translate as a performer. I wanted to do comedy. Sure. And so I totally believed what he was saying, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so then you did Max Dugan Returns, mm-hmm. which if I recall was uh, Jason Robards? Yeah. Uh, J- yeah. Yeah. The great Jason Robards. Yeah. So that's not bad for your first uh, go at it. Oh, it was unbelievable. And Marsha Mason and Donald Sutherland. Yeah, everywhere I turned, you know. Incredible. They were great. I mean, this was the, you know, right at 20th Century Fox. It was a, a real movie. I still remember the poster for it. It was this uh, drawn uh, cartoon, right? Yeah. Yes, that's right. If I think it was like a fictionalized man with a coat and a bag yes. floating up into space or something. Yeah, it was very trippy, yeah. But then um, not long after that, you did a movie that also affected me deeply. And it, still to this day, I was reading something about AI yesterday and how it could get the nuclear codes and, you know, that'd be the, the end of everything. And so that, of course, made me think of war games. Right. Scary fucking movie, <laughs> you yeah. know, but so ahead of its time. So cool that, you know, it's about this 
this sentient uh, thing and you're just a kid at home, you know, this is sort of pre, it's pre-internet and um, you, you log into uh, the nuclear, uh, you get into a conversation with this uh, n- nuclear computer. Yeah. It really does seem like today now, old fashioned as it is. I mean, the, if you look at the movie, the, the certainly the technology, but yeah, it's, it's very prescient now, you know? And then you did Lady Hawk, which is this yes. incredible fantasy film. You're hitting all the genres pretty quickly. Yes, I, I'd i like to say I had a plan, but I did not. But I, <laughs> I, I didn't think, now I need a medieval fantasy film with an animal in it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's what happened. And I got to shoot in uh, Italy, which was great, all over Italy. And I got to work with Dick Donner, who I really enjoyed so much, and Michelle and Rutger Hauer, so it was nice. Let's talk about John Hughes, because he is such a legend, and I, I feel like people don't know that much about him. You know, there's sort of secondhand, oh, mm-hmm. he said this, he did this, but I, I'm, I think I'm, one of the things I'm really excited about today is to get to know what your relationship with John Hughes was like. Yeah. Because he's, he's so myth- mythologized, you know? I know. Yeah, it's true. Well, you know, he was very uh, quiet in his way. Not always, but he didn't do a lot of interviews or like to talk about himself much, um, you know, that I knew. And, uh, you know, particularly the last many years of his life, he was, you know, very reclusive, really. Mm -hmm. I I don't think he was reclusive on his area in Chicago and his friends, by the way. But uh, as far as Hollywood and show business, he got, he really uh, got quiet. Um, yeah, I can I can tell you about when I I got to know him very well when we made that movie, um, and it was, you know, there's a million I have a million stories about him, but uh, yeah, and I and I when we started shooting it, we started in Chicago, and we had some bumps getting to know each other. You know, truthfully, we it wasn't all like, wow, this is all perfect. This is, movie's a hit, et cetera. It was kind of bumpier than that, but. Uh, once we got to L.A., we were all, you know, on the same page, definitely. And and I remember spending many, countless afternoons at, at John's house uh, in Brentwood. He had a pool and a hot tub, and we would just basically smoke cigarettes and s- swim and eat potato chips for, uh, you know, hours. Um, and he was very talkative, and uh, I, you know, I, tr- I treasure those times, and, and his his boys were really little then. They were running around and uh, Nancy. And uh, so I did get to know him. Um, and he was very funny, very observant, very uh, not Jewish. <laughs> if I can see if anybody knows what I mean by that. He's, uh, <laughs> he was not like uh, Gene Sachs or right. uh, Neil Simon. He was a different type of humor. He was... Uh, Waspy, I guess, is one word they use. <laughs> right. But extremely funny and uh, just a great mind. So you say there were bumps, so I have to ask, what what were the bumps? What, where well, were you no, not- nothing bad. I don't mean anything. I just mean, you know, we had the occasional... He, he was, you know, he was not like easygoing in some ways. He was uh, nervous that the it wouldn't come out right or that... Yeah, I remember we did a uh, a screen test early on, a, a costume test, 
in Chicago and we walked around on streets of Chicago and they filmed us, you know, in our various outfits, Mia, Alan and Jennifer Gray and Mia, Sarah. And, uh, I, that was a big drama when the footage came back. He's, he said, I think none of us were, were like fun to watch. Basically, you know, we were <laughs> boring in our test. Um, <laughs> actually some of us he did like but some he did not and I was one who he did not so uh, <laughs> so that was a, a challenge because I was kind of I had already done some work you know I had done more games and all that so I, I wasn't you know a total newcomer and to have him say you know I'm not used to somebody being so dead or whatever he said to me wow I was like you know I don't think he said dead but you know <laughs> I wasn't like really in it or something. And I've heard that from other directors too. I do drive people crazy sometimes because I'm, I don't appear to be doing anything sometimes it seems, but hopefully <laughs> eventually I do. But uh, I, it's not the first director who has at some point grabbed me and said, what is wrong with you? So wow. uh, uh, that happened. But I said, you know, then get somebody who you like, you know, if that's what you want, I'm fine. So we had a little bed butting, but he was somebody who could get angry at you or, uh, or not outwardly angry, but you could tell, you know, he would turn dead, dead face. You know, I'd say, what do you think of that? And he'd say, I don't know, you know, just nothing. I'd be like, okay, uh, John doesn't like that. Um, he told me once, uh, I'm only saying the bad things and there's almost none, but you know, he said, I. Uh, Oh, I like when your eyes go wide and then smaller and then wide again. He gave me some note about that he liked what I did with my face. And I said, you know, if you tell me exactly what my face is doing, I get very self-conscious. I'm kind of now I'm thinking about my face, you know, I'd rather, <laughs> you know, tell me. I'm probably putting this in a more favorable light to myself than it, how it really happened. But this is how I remember it. And uh, he did. He was like, well, then I won't direct you at all. <laughs> and I was like, "All right, fine." And for a few days, he didn't uh, he didn't give me anything till I finally had to say, "John, you gotta tell me, direct me." You know, come on. <laughs> and uh, he did. You know, uh, that was our worst one, I think. The one about the uh, screen test that one ended that night with a big dinner for everybody and lots of laughing and fun. So that was just a little short blip right so i think he's somebody who could he took the work very seriously is what i mean he was not a loosey-goosey person mm -hmm. around work but he also didn't hold a grudge and he and he knew how to get himself out of it and uh, get us out of it and uh and we always end up having fun and always ended up never let these fights last longer than a day or a half a day Part of me thinks that, you know, the fact that you're not giving too much was sort of baked into Ferris Bueller. There, there was an insouciance there that, that you know, he, he, he wasn't a pleaser. Yeah, maybe I was annoying him the way Ferris annoys uh, his own parents. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking, you know. Yeah, that's, that's a good He's point. always in control. Yeah, that might be true. He, maybe he, he's like, John Hughes is like Frankenstein, and I was the monster. Uh, Ferris Bueller was the monster. That's what I'm thinking, because he chose you, and you are Ferris Bueller in my mind. I, can't, I could never separate the two. So, I am now. Uh, <laughs> Incredible. 
One of the worst performances of my career, and they never doubted it for a second. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? This is my ninth sick day this semester. It's getting pretty tough coming up with new illnesses. If I go for 10, I'm probably gonna have to barf up a lung. So I better make this one count. Let's go a little backwards to, you know, how you even came to him and, and how you beat out. Uh, it's Because he has a, a, a sort of repertory of actors that he was working with, with all his films, and you were not one of them. So how, how did you break in and become Ferris Bueller? Um, you know, I, I don't know the before I was there part. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I don't really know why he wanted me for that. Um, all I know, I was doing uh, Bloxy Blues at the time and uh, I, uh, on Broadway, and I got sent the, uh, a script. And I remember they were like, this is the uh, Steven Spielberg of teen films, John Hughes. You know, you, this is incredible that you've been asked to look at this. And uh, Okay, so it was clear at that point oh, the, the, the magnitude of what this project could be. Yes, it was certainly clear to my agent I, of course, being, you know, new and recently successful, had not even bothered to, I I didn't, I hadn't even seen some of John's movies, so I had to rent them at a, uh, there used to be these places that had tapes that you could rent and put them in a machine (laughs) and play movies. What? Impossible. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I know I rented them because six months later, I got a call from a collection agency that said, you owe $9,891 $9,891 for <laughs> 16 candles, breakfast club. Uh, You're like, you have to return them? Well, I thought once I got the job, there was no reason to you know, deal with the tapes. But I, apparently, we negotiated that down, by the way. Yeah, so my, I remember I was like, well, I don't know. I just doing this play where I talked to the audience. I did another play where I talked to the audience. And even in... Lady Hawk, I a little bit talked to the audience. Like, I, this guy's talking to the audience. I think maybe I shouldn't do this. And uh, wow, I swear by the time I had finished that sentence, my agent from California was already flown to New York and standing next to me saying, what are you, what are you talking about? Yeah. You know, it was like when Marty Feldman comes down from the, uh, <laughs> the, the roof of the castle when there's lightning possible. Like, he got to me so quickly. <laughs> uh, to say, you know, you're not not doing this movie, you idiot. I never even thought of the uh, the breaking of the third wall there, but that's like so commonplace now with like uh, I know at the time documentaries I thought, and things. I you know I I don't know I thought like everything seeming to I was always scared of doing things that are too much the same and I'd get stuck, you know. But uh, so you didn't love the script? Like were I you, were did you? love this. I did love the script. I just was trying to be a smartass about. Uh, <laughs> I don't know career. what I was thinking. I wasn't really. If this wasn't like I was like maybe I shouldn't do it. I was just sort of discussing it. Right, right. But but uh, my agent was like, we're not going to discuss that. And uh, <laughs> and um, my mom too. You know, I remember she, she was like my right hand, and uh, she loved it too. And and um, and so did I. I mean, I thought the script was great. I just, you know, whatever. Very similar to what the film ended up being? Very similar. Uh, Just longer. Mm -hmm. You know, it had had more uh, serious stuff in it, I think, is my feeling. Like, 
the stuff with uh, Cameron's dad, it wasn't, there were no scenes with Cameron's dad, but the kind of angsty part of teenage life, which is in the movie, I, I think there was, uh, there was more, the more of that in the longer version. That's my memory. And the, the longer cut, they kept sort of making, it, I think my memory is John even said he was, as he screened it, he started to realize more and more it was a, it was a comedy. It didn't change in overall feeling. It just got sharper and shorter as, as, the, uh, as the editing continued. Now, you mentioned uh, Cameron, so that's Alan Ruck. Now, is it true he was in Biloxi Blues with you or some play mm -hmm. on Broadway? He was in Biloxi Blues. Exactly, yeah. So you guys were already quite uh, close and familiar with each other's rhythms and things. Yeah, we had been doing that play for uh, almost a year, I think. And, oh, um, wow. Or, I don't know what point of the play, but we we did it for a year, ended up doing it for a year. But uh, I don't know who thought of Alan, if it was me or John. John came to the, I know he came to Bloxy Blues. I, I think, really, I was thought always thought that uh, Alan Ruck would be perfect for Cameron. And then he came in and read, and uh, everybody absolutely loved him, so... It was no, uh, it was no struggle. I want my daughter out in front of the school in 10 minutes by herself. I don't want anybody. What? It's too suspicious. He'll think something's up. Cover it. You talk. You talk. Come on. Three on six. Talk. Ronnie! Uh, Ronnie! Yes, yes. Listen here, pay attention. I changed my mind. I want you out in front of the school with her. I'd like to have a few words with you, by God. On second thought, we don't have time to talk right now. We'll get together soon and we'll have lunch. Ow! What the hell is wrong with you? Where's your brain? Why'd you kick Where's me? Where's your brain? Why'd you kick me? Where's your brain? I asked you first. Have you been watching him on Succession? It's so nice to see him have yes. this renaissance. I'm so happy for him, yeah. I think he's so good. He's so good on that. He's always good. And I that's what I thought when I first did the first started even rehearsing in Bloxy Blues. He was I think he was out of Chicago, and uh, I was like, "Who's this guy? He's so good, um, so interesting." And I just thought he was great. So I'm very glad that he's uh, having this great success now. I don't want it to get any better though, because then I'll be mad and jealous. But right now, it's good. <laughs> well, that's honest of you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> So, you know, where do I even start? There's so many, like, iconic sequences in this film, but I, I guess since we have limited time, let's just get to a few. Of, uh, first of all, um, Jeffrey Jones is your, um, is your nemesis, uh, mm. as your principal at the school, and Edie um, McClurg who, as his uh, yeah. secretary. I don't trust this kid any further than I can throw him. Well, with your bad knee, Ed, you shouldn't throw anybody. What is so dangerous about a character like Ferris Bueller is he gives good kids bad ideas. Uh-huh. Last thing I need at this point in my career is 1,500 Ferris Bueller disciples running around these halls. He jeopardizes my ability to effectively govern this student body. Well, makes you look like an ass is what he does, Ed. Thank you, Grace. I think you're wrong. Oh, well, he's very popular, Ed. The sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, dickheads. They all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. Such a brilliant comic duo and uh, really 
keeps the, uh, the 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 plot in motion because he's constantly on your tail and is yeah. the perfect foil to you. So hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I think he's just so good. Yeah, I remember watching him shoot his feet getting stuck in the mud and his shoe. You know, uh, there's right. something when he's creeping out and At the, towards the end feet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> He was, I remember just admiring what a good physical comedian. It's not that he was like balletic or something, but he just looked so funny and real anytime he had to fall or, you know, get something, part of his body stuck somewhere. I just thought he was amazing to watch. No! And he, you know, he's a great uh, dramatic actor, of course, but uh, very, very funny. He takes it very seriously. And um, even the thing after the credits when he's on the bus, I think, is so good. <laughs> with, with the with the warm, squishy uh, yeah. uh, gummy bear. <laughs> right. Which I think was meant to be in the middle of the movie, and they cut it out and then loved it and put it at the end. But uh, Gummy bear? Been in my pocket. They're real warm and soft. And Edie, of course, and and uh, Lyman Ward, the who played my father, and yeah. my my mom, like and Jennifer. I'm everybody was good. It was like uh, one of those kind of magical things, you know, where everybody. I mean, that's John. You know, he, right. that's him Him picking absolutely the right people. And I identified in having two sisters and always feel like I could get away with anything and and they couldn't. Yes. There was something very relatable about that. So enraging, yeah. <laughs> I believe originally we had two other siblings, by the way. Oh, no kidding. Somebody reminded me of this. I, uh, I think Alan, I forgot, but apparently we had two even younger there were two other kids, so maybe you can see, like, on the refrigerator or something, a picture of them. But I think they <laughs> might have even been in the movie way back. Oh, really? And then they were cut out? I guess so, just like what I thought happened to me sometimes. But, it, <laughs> yeah, poor four. They're probably huge stars. With Tom Cruise and, yeah. you know, Jennifer Aniston. I don't know who it was. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, it just wasn't meant to be that time, I guess. Yeah. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Another thing, uh, obviously, the, the Ferrari, um, the car. Yes. The 1961 Ferrari 250 GT California. Less than 100 were made. My father spent three years restoring this car. It is his love, it is his passion, it is his fault he didn't lock the garage. Ferris, what are you talking about? (laughs) Ferris, my father loves this car more than life itself. A man with priorities so far out of whack doesn't deserve such a fine automobile. No, no. Apparently, you don't understand. Wow. Ferris, he never drives it. He just rubs it with a diaper. Hey, remember how insane he went when I broke my retainer? Huh? Come on, that was a little piece of plastic. This is a Ferrari. Que bella. It's such a symbol, I mean, to of, of just neglect. And, um, and then, of course, the scene where you leave it at the garage and they take it on the joyride. Yeah. Were you driving the car at all? Yeah, we well, no, never the Ferrari. We drove. We had a fake a, a, a kit, you know, a, some sort of prop. It was a plastic Ferrari glued onto a some sort of maybe a Ford, or I don't remember. I've read about what that was, but I don't remember. But it was a it was a fake Ferrari. It looked like a real Ferrari. It did not drive like a real Ferrari. It was you know <laughs> kind of labored, and uh, it very often didn't start. Which wow. was uh, surprising because the one thing you would want in a car in a movie would be that you turn the key and it and it goes, and uh, it didn't <laughs> always go. Uh, but it looked great, and um, and I think that's what we tossed out the window. We certainly didn't toss out a real Ferrari, which would be sacrilege, um, right? We had a real Ferrari for the scenes when uh, Alan and I are uh, just like giving it a rub down in the, uh, in the, in his dad's garage, you know, that glass garage. Yes. Even that's mostly not real, but there were inserts and close-ups of the real one. And I believe we were with the real one very briefly. That was the real star. Whenever the, the Ferrari was around, you know, closed set, you know, it was a big deal when the Ferrari was moved in. That scene where you're trying to roll back the odometer and you just hear the engine revving and you and he finally yeah. kind of has his breakthrough um, yes. is a very powerful scene. Was this was it really revving or was that all like added later? I think it was added later, um, but it was very powerful. Uh, Alan, it was like definitely the dram- dramatic high point of that movie and uh, he really delivered. Uh, and... Uh, And Mia and me were just sort of, you know, standing back and watching him do it. Uh, and I remember how that day being very uh, exciting, uh, just in how good he was. I got to take a stand against him. 
I am not going to sit on my ass as the events that affect me unfold to determine the course of my life. I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to defend it. Right or wrong, I'm going to defend it. I'm so sick of his shit. I can't stand him and I just got him wrong. Who do you love? Who do you love? You love a car. I also remember, you know, he keeps kicking. I think he kicks the car before it falls off the jack. And right. So he shot over and over again. And one time he, with his foot, he missed the bumper. So, uh, his shin hit the car instead of his foot. And, uh, he Ouch. had like a softball sized lump <laughs> on, uh, one of his shins and he had to keep shooting. And I just remember thinking, oh, God, what about his shin? I'm so worried about his shin. Um, and the actual going through the plate glass window, was that you had only one time to, to do that, I would assume? We had only one time, and we had 8 million cameras all shooting at once. I don't remember if we were involved in that. We were definitely saw. I remember watching it. I don't remember. We were probably standing there when it went out to get us tied into that moment. Uh, I remember, it, it, you know, when it wasn't like slow motion and whatever and edited, it didn't look all that special. <laughs> right. It really just looked like a car falling out of a window and hitting something. <laughs> you know, it's not like it wasn't. Uh, right. It wasn't like in uh, a 70s TV show where the car goes flip, 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 boom, and explodes in flame. It was just right, like right. that. Yeah. But it had to capture your reaction in real time, I guess, right? And Yes, yes. And then we shot lots of reactions to uh, creeping over the edge of the garage and looking at it. I remember shooting that. What did I do? You killed the car. Yeah, it's it's an amazingly powerful scene, especially that you never see the father, but you you feel it. You feel him. I know, I know. That's John's brilliance, you know. I mean, it it's it's a comedy, but also has underpinnings of a very serious story about teenagers and about you know growing up and what kind of man do you want to be, and you know there are very big themes in that film actually but there that doesn't feel like it hopefully no that was it is that you were loving it and laughing and it was a regular teen comedy but yet somehow it was really hitting where where you live yeah yeah it has something under it you know i remember when after doing the movie uh, so I, I i never could but people would just from all different walks of life were so into it i think they just were into the idea of having a day off too. That too. You know, for a lot of people, that's, you know, once you start working in your job, it's just so this idea that you could maybe escape for one 24 hour period is, uh, is a real thing, you know? And also that you could maximize it. You didn't just take a day off. You went to a baseball yeah. game. You went for fancy, you ate uh, pancreas. Yes. <laughs> you, <Right. laughs> you went to the museum. Like you, you made the most of your one day. Absolutely, yeah. And it goes way beyond reality. It's uh, 
that's when it becomes a fairy tale in, in a good way. But it's funny, whenever I do have a really jam-packed day, whether on vacation or whatever, I always think of it as, as a Ferris Bueller day. I, <laughs> I really, I had a great day. Yeah. I really lived <laughs> yeah. life. And, and there's something to that, for sure, for sure. I remember, um, you know, when we go to a, a Cubs game in the middle of it, too. Right, of course. And there was a little more to that scene where I was, like, snapping at them, because they, they, I think, I don't remember what's still in it, but Mia didn't really want to, she wants to leave the game, I think. You know, she's bored, or maybe Alan's bored, I don't remember. And I was like, what is the matter with you? You're not having fun? You know, Ferris cannot believe or stand that anybody isn't having a great time. Right, right. And it got cut out, whichever part of it I mean got cut out. And I, and I, and John told me, yeah, one of, some of the people filling out cards at the screening said, I don't like him because he might make me do things I don't want to do about Ferris Bueller. Mm -hmm. So he had trimmed out things where people were like, can we please leave the game? And I was like, no, you can't leave the game. You're going to have fun, you know? Interesting. He, he had to sort of trim all that out because it could break into the Ferris Bueller is really a bully. He's a bully. <laughs> you know, that if you don't enjoy yourself, he's really mad at you. So uh, <laughs> we, we had to uh, uh, trim that out. It's interesting that he really did care what these uh, audience feedback things uh, said. Because I, I know there's other examples, like uh, Sloan says something about, makes a kind of offhand joke about, um, you know, if she can't have a career, she'll just get married and get pregnant, and women hated it, and they took that out. Right. Um, and changing the, the order of things. And I think he, he, you know, some directors would say, like, I don't care what the audience thinks. Yeah. This is what I think. But he seemed to be in tune to how people were responding. Well, I think so. He, he, um, I'm sure there were things that he wouldn't change, by the way. Uh, he was very aware that it was a, that he made, tried to make popular entertainment. You know, he, he, uh, I hate speaking for him, but he, uh, you know, he had the, the one sheet, the poster for Ferris Bueller before we shot, you know, leisure rules or, uh, there was a mock-up of it. Really? Yeah. So, uh, I don't know if it was the same one that was finally used, but it was similar. So that was, he always was aware of the audience and would this be fun to watch? You know, he, he, he came from a marketing background, I think, from the advertising world. Advertising, right. So, uh. I think he was used to checking out what how people were reacting to his thing and and adjusting it. I have to ask about the Sausage King of Chicago sequence. Mm -hmm. uh, I love that whole scene, how you talk your way into this really fancy restaurant with the snooty at Major D. <laughs> Shea Keys. <isn't> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, something like that, yeah. What's the um, joke about Shakey's? <laughs> oh, I see. Shaky. Yeah. Oh, I never got that. I didn't either. That had to be explained to me. John Hughes explained, explained to me way after we shot it. <laughs> okay, there you go. An Easter egg. Shakey's, which is like a, a pretty low-rent pizza chain. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just the hilariousness of, of the scheming to get in and how you do it, and there's nothing that was going to stop you guys. Hello. May I help you? You can sure as hell try. Hi. I'm Abe Froman. Party of three for 12. <laughs> Is there a problem? You're Abe Froman. That's right. I'm Abe Froman. The sausage king of Chicago. Yeah, that's me. Listen, young man, 
Entre nous, I'm very busy here. Why don't you take the kids and go back to the clubhouse? Love that sequence. And then, um, of course, the museum sequence, which used uh, mm. the Smiths, uh, mm. uh, a beautiful um, uh, instrumental uh, cover of the Smiths, which had um, the George Seurat painting the, the, before, I think, even uh, it became Sunday in the Park with George. It, it was a huge... I think it is before that. Yeah. I, in fact, yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to... I think it is. I think, I think it is. I based it on the film. I think he based it on <laughs> <laughs> Ferris Bueller. Oh, I wish he had done a Ferris Bueller musical. That would have been amazing. Yeah, well, he did. It's called Sunday in the Park <laughs> It's called Sunday in the Park with George. Yeah. <laughs> you guys were there first. So, no, but that was a beautiful sequence. Uh, it so, sure was. Uh, uh, just a moment to remind you to just, you know, enjoy art, live life, know. you know? It's, it's beautiful. And, uh, and I'll bet it's gotten a lot of people to the uh, museum in Chicago. Yeah, the Art the Institute. Art Institute, I, yeah. I've been there several times, yeah. Yeah, I have too, yeah. It's so so beautifully made, that part. And that's all, John. I mean, that's just us standing exactly where we're told and him putting the camera in the, where it belonged and the music, editing. He loved music, by the way. That was like his... As, as much as film, I always thought that's what he he loved picking music and uh, producing music and uh, playing you new music. He was always uh, had some new band and he was always listening and wanting you to listen. And the the soundtrack is uh, amazing. I mean, uh, another song, Oh Yeah by Yellow, the Chick Chick right. song. Such an amazing yeah. sequence. <laughs> yeah, now you see it for Floor Wax. <laughs> right, right. But yeah. you guys had it first. Um, and then, of course, he was a huge Beatles fan, which brings us to the climax of the film, uh, the the parade and and uh, Twist and Shout, which I would imagine you probably put back on the charts because that was a pretty huge thing. Yeah. That scene. Yeah. God, it was thrilling. Um, I worked, it took a long time, a lot of rehearsal, and uh, Kenny Ortega choreographed it. Now, how was it written? Because it's it's a strange thing, but basically, in the in the in the plot, you guys kind of just make yourselves part of a parade in Chicago because you're trying to avoid your dad. So, but yeah, so, so you jump on a float, right? And uh, so the script said you sing Donkashan, and I don't know if it said it, if it said Twist and Shout. I think it did, though. I know I worked on Twist and Shout because I had to lip sync it, and. Uh, also, we didn't have the the Beatles performance at the time, you know. So uh, there was uh, we didn't know who was going to sing it. So I, I'm not sure I remember how it was in the script. I remember on any day off meeting Kenny Ortega in a in a dance studio and trying to work on that sequence and Donkashan too. And um, actually, I hurt my knee really badly filming before that. Uh, one of the running through the lawn in the back of the, all those lawns, I horribly twisted my knee. Like it swole up like a, enormously. It was really messed it up. So many leg injuries between you I know. and Cameron I know. Shin. You're right. And and I couldn't, so I, anyway, I did, the only thing of interest for that is I couldn't do most of what Kenny Ortega had wanted me to do. So it would have been more, Zhuzhi choreography, probably, but I kind of had to give most of that up. And then also my memory in shoot when we finally shot it was we would do what we had planned and then John would be like, now just 
mess around and make it up. So a lot of it was just that. Because I think it didn't want it to look like a number. They want, you know, we wanted it to look, or he wanted it to look like a uh, something that just happened. And and some of it did, you know. Some of the people in the crowd and stolen shots of people dancing, I think, was done with people who didn't really have any plan or know what they were going to do, or maybe in some instances even knew they were in it. What do you think Ferris is going to do? Is it true that it was like a Cubs parade that it wasn't even it wasn't set up for the film it, it was you really did hijack a parade We did it was not a Cubs parade it was I th- God, I'm not sure if I'm confusing the movie in real life. or uh, I think it was a Polish or a German something. Is that what oh, it like is a in Polish, the movie? Uh, oh, yeah, now that's like, uh, because people are dressed up in traditional Polish garb. Yeah, you're right. Yes. It was real. And we shot in the actual parade, um, I think over two weekends, we shot it. And uh, one was the parade, which we joined in. And then the coverage we did. Uh, on another weekend after when the parade was already done. But for that day, I remember they wanted to get a bunch of, they wanted to, to get it crowded, you know, as if there was a parade. So they had some sort of contest and they, you know, you can get a free t-shirt and be in a new Paramount Pictures release, you know, <laughs> your chance to win $5 or something. And um, <laughs> right. more people showed up for that than the parade, I think. Oh, wow. So... Those days, the crowd was even bigger somehow, and uh, and it was man, but it was thrilling. It, there was something. Somebody said there were ten thousand people in one of those shots. How they count that, or if that's even remotely true, I don't know. But uh, it felt like it. It was, uh, and to be at this at the center of that, you know, was really scary, but also uh, really fun. Yeah, you done Broadway, and then you went on to do producers. But like, you don't strike me as like, you know, the kind of guy that would be like a rock star. I don't leap onto <laughs> a float. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it had to have been nerve wracking. Very nerve wracking. Yeah, it is not my type of thing. Um, <laughs> you know, let's, you know, I had fifteen beers or something. I didn't Did go you? to college, so no. I mean, I, I'm not the type who does that sort of. Thing. Oh, I okay, okay. Do, I don't think I would. I would do that. But on the other hand, it was pretty fun, and um, all those dancers around me were really fun, and uh, I loved it. I, and John was so great. He was he was having such a good time. He was on a car in front of the float with his bullhorn and laughing. We were all. I remember it as an extremely joyful day. And I have to assume that, you know, because the nature of the script is that Ferris Bueller is a rock star. He's a righteous dude. Everyone wants to be, you know, the the, the jocks. Everyone loves And that became you, I would think. That became part of your persona. Did it change your life? Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, it was a big success, you know, gradually. So uh, it did change my life. Um, it was also... You know, it, it, it with all these things, it's great and it's sort of a challenge or scary. You know, you're like, well, now what do I do? 
you know, speaking from myself and my career and, you know, where do I go? What does that lead to? And uh, how do I have a long career? Which is what I wanted. So there was some fear or challenge that, you know, that I'm now so strongly this guy, am I allowed to do anything else, you know? So uh, I'm always a little worried about these things. Uh, So yeah, it, it, it provided huge opportunities for me. That's the overwhelming takeaway in my opinion, but it also closed off some avenues. It, it you know, it, it, it maybe could have typed me in a way. I don't know. I, I feel like I'm one of those lunatics who talks about themselves like they're an industry or a, uh, in the third person, which I don't want to be, but. Well, but it, it is, I am really curious, like, uh, you know, how, what did specifically it open up for you and what, and what do you think it, first of all, why weren't you nominated for an Oscar? For, for for it that is a really good question and i don't know um i think comedy's never i don't know why maybe it wasn't that good yes no it was you you know yeah. you should have won and um <laughs> and it is curious to me why that why uh, maybe yeah you're right you know yeah the academy didn't take comedies seriously enough certainly not a teen comedy maybe a woody allen comedy but it yeah. should have so so what I'm, I'm curious if you want to get into it um you know what the, the the positives and negatives were of of, of specifically Ferris Bueller. Well, I'm trying to think what I did after that. The the um the positives were I had been in a movie that had made a lot of money, and so my value went up. You know, in the uh, in the industry. I mean, so you could ask for more money in your next movie. Yes. Okay. So I could ask for more money and hopefully be asked to do more things or better things. And uh, you know, it was a it was a very nice leapfrog on the ladder for me. Um, but at the same time, it's like, well, you know, I don't want uh, Ferris Bueller playing the cop who's the investigator, whatever the other part, you know, that it might, some directors might say, no, Ferris Bueller doesn't belong in this, or I don't believe him as this. So I, it's like me and him are one thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, Brighton Beach and and War Games were were pretty different. It was I didn't feel like oh he's always this wisecracking guy from mm-hmm. 1937, and there was some fear that now I'm just this leprechaun, <laughs> you know, Ferris Bueller who's uh, <laughs> who can't be believed in any you know he's always sarcastic whatever I don't know uh, right right but but you know what you do is keep slugging away. So I just kept working. I kept trying to pick the thing I thought was the best of what I had. And uh, and then you just see how it goes. And then I, I'm looking at your at your resume now or, you know, your filmography. And, and so in 1989, so that would be three years later, you did Glory, which I think definitely changed people's perception of the kinds of things you do. And, you know, as a classic and amazing uh, performance and amazing film. Thank you. Oh yeah, I was. I always loved doing it. Um, yeah, I had a that year was a very uh, diverse year. I did um a f- family business with Sydney Lamette, which wasn't didn't come out very well, but uh, it was so great to work with him and uh, Dustin Hoffman and Sean Connery. A lot of times, I've I've worked with great people in things that didn't turn out well, which is very disappointing, I must say. Uh, and I've had a bunch of those, but uh, on the other hand, I'm so happy that I got to work with those people, you know, really, really am. And, uh, then the freshman I did with Marlon Brando that year too. Uh, right. 
you know, um, which is amazing to say I worked with Marlon Brando. So, I mean, I would say so. And then I, so, and you worked with John Hughes again or? No, I never did. Uh, uh, we couldn't, we never did a sequel to Ferris. Uh, he never, I never, he never asked me. Uh, but you would have been open to it. She, oh yeah, absolutely. I even once or twice called him to try to see if he wanted to do something. You know, I'd get a script and think maybe John would like this. And and there were a couple that he was had written that he wanted that he didn't want to direct, and that I I wasn't available. We had a few almosts, but uh, uh, it never happened. But it wasn't from lack of wanting it to happen, at least on on my side. And I, you know, he died rather suddenly and it was shocking to everyone. I'm sure it must have been really hard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had not spoken to him in quite a while at that point, but uh, I was uh, absolutely stunned that he died. And uh, as, of course, was his family um, and a lot of other people, uh, just terrible, much too young. Um, but I saw his family after that and, Nancy and uh, it was great to reconnect with them a little bit, but uh, mm. that was just awful. I think he died with with his son there. Yeah, like on the on a corner in New York. I, I believe so. Yeah, I never really yeah, got was, the details of it, but uh, it was, it was very horrible because he you hadn't heard from him for so long, and then that's the, the next time you hear is this I know. horrible news. I know, but you know when I talked to people who knew him, and he did have a whole life there in Chicago whatever part of Chicago that is. Sorry to sound like a New Yorker, but I, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> he had a social life that outside of Hollywood that maybe we don't know about, but it's not like he was, a, he wasn't like a whispering rosebud into a fire. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Uh, and you have uh, three kids with uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, and I'm curious what um, they think of, uh, I mean, is this your favorite movie to share with them or... Do you have good memories of sharing it with them? And what did your kids think of Ferris Bueller? I've never watched it with them. Uh, they seem to know about it, but I don't remember <laughs> them seeing it. They, they uh... <laughs> that blows my mind. If like if I was Ferris Bueller, I'd be like, okay, you're sitting down, you're you're three, you're sentient. We're gonna watch this together. Yeah, you... <laughs> at three, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're like, uh, no. I don't know. With my son, I remember being like, you know, son, it might be time to show you Ferris Bueller. And he was like, I know, I've seen it. It <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, like, oh. pretty good. And, uh, <laughs> and the girls have seen it too, Loretta and Tabitha. Uh, but I don't remember when, and I don't remember it being talked about. It's a little weird when you're parents are in stuff, I think, for kids. It's, it's hard to make sense of it. I, I felt that with my own father, hmm. you know. I'll tell you, everyone else, it meant a huge deal to them. So, and uh, <laughs> myself as my well. Ki- except yeah. for my kids, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're, no, they're, they're the three exceptions, but um, yeah. thank you. Uh, Matthew, uh, I don't want to take up any more of your time. You've been so generous. Uh, this was incredible. Thank you, and you were definitely such a, a American treasure. Thank you, Matthew Broderick, for being you. Thanks for having me so much. It really was fun. Thank you. Oh, you're still here? Go home. Go. The podcast is over. No, just kidding. Uh, But that's how the original film ended. If you waited past the credits, Ferris Bueller came out and 
shoot everyone home. Now, you know, post-credits scenes are, uh, you know, de rigueur, but I think this was the first one. Maybe I'm wrong and you can let me know, but it certainly was the first one that made an impression on me. Anyway, Matthew Broderick, you are so iconic and amazing to me. Thank you. And I, I should note also that we had uh, Nathan Lane in season two. So now we've had both stars of Broadway's, the producers on It Happened in Hollywood and how lucky for me that is. So thank you so much, Matthew Broderick. And next up, we're going a little more indie. We have Greg Araki, the mythic indie queer filmmaker who's having a bit of resurgence now. I've seen uh, his name bubbling up, up a lot on Twitter and for good reason. He's a very undersung filmmaking genius and boy, we had a great talk. So get me to the Doom Generation, which was sort of his mainstream breakthrough and they just re-released it in 4K, completely re recolored and, and remixed and everything looks just like it did when it originally came out. So if you saw it on a bootlegged video like I did, this is really an experience. So watch The Doom Generation and come back next week. And until then, we'll see you in Hollywood. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.